We're going to turn our attention now to the scripture for this morning, which is found in Matthew 5. That's the very beginning of Jesus' very long sermon, Sermon on the Mount, preached outside. We're going to be in one short paragraph, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. If you follow along in the Bible, it's great, but probably by the time you get there, we'll be done. So you can just follow along on the screen, too. Yeah. All right. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Listen to what Jesus has to say to us. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. And no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is that you? It's not just singular. It's not just an individual you. It's plural. You. He already had crowds of people gathering around him because he was doing amazing miracles and exorcisms. But then there was a special group who really wanted Jesus to be their rabbi. So they came closer. He went up on a mountain. He sat down with them and he said, you. So he was talking to the disciples. And for our purposes today, he's talking to the church. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And what does it mean to be salt? An impressive chunk of salt up here, huh? What does it mean to be salt? Perhaps the first thing that comes to mind is just the flavoring, the seasoning of salt. If any of you have been on a low-salt diet, the taste of bread without salt, the taste of eggs without salt, my favorite potato chips at Trader Joe's are now ruined because they are low-salt. <laughs> I will not buy them like that. It adds flavor. But for Jesus' day, probably more important, salt was a preservative. And I think of olives. A lot of olives were grown around where Jesus lived. And olives are pretty salty. They are preserved with salt. Even frozen food, if you're trying to go on a low-salt diet, if you check the sodium content in frozen food, why is it so high? It's a preservative, right? Yeah. The human body, 0.4% of the human body is salt. So when it's sweated out by athletes, what do they take? When Rafa Nadal gets a cramp and almost can't finish the French Open, takes a salt pill. Salt is a very important part of the body. Interesting, too, though, in the Old Testament that salt was a part of the offering that the people of God gave. And it also had symbolism of covenant loyalty. It would preserve the loyalty of the people of God. Interesting. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What does that mean? 
Light reveals, doesn't it? It reveals the way things really are. It's one of those reasons many of us like to be in low light when we're looking in the mirror <laughs> or dressing up in the evening. It reveals things as they really, really are. Light also draws us as a moth to a flame, we've heard. But there's something compelling about light that makes you want to go toward it. Light therapy for people that live in darkness. And most of the year, they just deal with an enormous amount of, or at least half the year, darkness. But also, interestingly enough, light is reflected, isn't it? I'm one of those people that just loves the moon. Every time I see it, I gasp. It's just so stunning to me, and it reflects light. So neither of these things, you are salt, you are light, they don't draw attention to themselves. They actually are there for the world's sake. They are there for a purpose. So if salt loses its saltiness, which means that it gets mixed with too many other elements, then it's useless. And if light is hidden under a bushel or if it's actually smothered, it loses its purpose. You, church, you followers of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and if you lose your mission, if you lose your purpose in the world, you're worthless. If you fulfill your mission, though, you glorify God. You glorify your Father in heaven. Mark Laverton, who was here last Sunday, and he wrote the book called, and this is our series for the summer, What It Means to Be the Church Today, he talked about a time when he was serving in Berkeley. He was the pastor there for 17 years, First Presbyterian Church, Berkeley. And there was a particular young man who came up to him after worship. This man was pretty much covered in tattoos. He had been on the road for many, many years as a professional musician, uh, touring with his band, and now he was a grad student. And he came to Mark afterwards and he said this, I go to some churches and they talk a lot about Jesus, but little about the world. I go to other churches and they talk a lot about the world, but little about Jesus. You seem to talk a lot about Jesus and a lot about the world. I know lots of people like me in this town. I don't need to find more of us. Here's what I want to know. If I hang out at your church, will I meet people who are actually like Jesus? Perfect question. Perfect question for us because our spiritual goal here is to know Jesus so intimately that we become like him. If we hang out, if someone comes here as a visitor and hangs out at this church, will they meet people who are actually like Jesus? That's probably the most important question as we look at our own growth and maturity. He quotes a survey in here done by Barna, the Barna Group, in 2007, where they were surveying people outside the church to hear what they thought about the church. And the top three words that came up that were used to describe the church, can you guess what they were? Judgmental, homophobic, hypocritical. Ouch. Ouch. 
And he goes on to write in this book saying it doesn't take a whole lot of research to realize that many people feel that the Christian church bears little resemblance to the one it claims to follow. This book was written four years ago. That survey was done in 2007. So how about today? What words would be used to describe the church? Pat Warner um, was asking me a few weeks ago, it was at the Women's Connection, I asked her permission to share this. She has been really committed to bringing her granddaughters here whenever she's had the chance as they've grown up, they're now in their 20s, the three of them. And she came rushing up to me at the Women's Connection. She goes, I don't know what to say to my granddaughters. They are saying to me, they're quoting these experiences they've had. They went to Gunn High School and at one point, there were members of a church that surrounded the school because they had a, a, a gay club, to use your words, and they were shouting to people there, the students on the campus, God hates fags, you're all going to hell. So they hear this associated with the church, and then most recently, they said to her, they were quoting um, this thing that they read about a pastor who said, our Lord Jesus Christ has told me I need a third larger private jet. I cannot go in those metal tubes full of demons. And they're saying, we're, we're the ones in the metal tubes. We're the demons. So what does it mean to be the church? They come to Trinity. They have been to this church many times. They have gone to the Bible class, been baptized here, and they see Trinity giving to the poor, giving the aroma of Jesus Christ so Pat was like, what do I tell them? What do I tell them when they're wondering about the church? And the first answer that came out of my head was, if it looks like Jesus, it's the church. Or if it's trying to look like Jesus, moving in the direction of knowing and looking like Jesus. Let your light so shine that people will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. God's heart, who God is, has been revealed fully in the way, the truth, the life of Jesus Christ, his seasoning, if you will, the preserving of his covenant love, this steadfast love of grace extended to all, the revealing of his truth, the living out of his compelling love, drawing all people to himself, all people you know, I think we think when we hear, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, it's kind of like, nah, not me. That's for the people that are really evangelistic, really good about sharing the good news with other people. That's not me. I think it's interesting to go to the first 12 verses before Jesus even says these words about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Listen to what he says is the blessed way of life. It is the most unusual list accessible to all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that translation would be for justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, totally devoted, eyes on God, wanting God, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's accessible. Anybody been poor in spirit? Anybody grieving? To me, it's a list of mostly of people who are a mess. Blessed are you when you are meek, when you admit, blessed are the merciful. I thought it was very powerful when Pope Francis, I think it was 2017, the year of Jubilee, he declared it the theme of mercy. And he wrote this book, The Name of God is Mercy. And he said this, this is what changes the world. A little mercy makes the world a little less cold and more just. You know, the Presbyterian Church has been meeting the last week, beginning a week ago, actually a week ago Saturday. And one of the things that came out of that, it's interesting, you know, we were talking about it, Kurt was sharing with me something that they did. They took an offering at the opening worship service, and this offering was to go to the Bail Project, B-A-I-L, B-A-I-L, yeah, Bail Project, in St. Louis, because so many people who are poor can't afford bail and end up staying in jail sometimes for two years because they can't afford the bail. Of course, they can't work. Of course, they can't be with their families, and there's just this vicious, vicious cycle. And it was interesting to me because that's the story you wanted to tell. That's the first story that came out about the church. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Some of you know that uh, this last week has been a really interesting one for me. On Tuesday morning, I found out that there was a gathering down at the border, and this has to do with the upsetting news that we have been hearing about children being separated from their families as they come across the border. And uh, so many were wondering, what do we do, what do we do? And the thing that was so on my heart all last week was Jesus would call us to be standing with them solidarity, that incarnational way of Jesus Christ. And I thought, we really need to get down there. I was thinking somebody else, not me. We need to get down there and really be with them and see what's going on and understand firsthand and walk with these families one by one and support them in whatever way we can. So then I heard that there was going to be an interfaith gathering down there at a Catholic church in San Isidro and that they were going to go out to a detention center. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I should go. And it's like, right, Mary, you're preaching on Sunday. You got the new members class. You got this week that's overly full. And I still felt like I need to go. I need to go. And I just said to God, okay, if somebody goes with me, I'll go. So I'm sitting there cranking away at my computer. Margie Barkow pokes her head in my office, which she never does, and says, I'm really upset about what's going on at the border. And I said, you want to go down there? And three hours later, we had booked a flight. So we went down there overnight, staying at this Catholic church, gathering with other faiths, praying together in this Catholic church, out in the parking lot, having a candlelight vigil. African Americans are leading us into the sanctuary singing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. A Jewish rabbi comes up to the Catholic podium, two Catholic candles, lights them and says, these are Shabbat candles, and starts going like this, which is what they do, 
and says, this is to invite the light of God into us. I thought, oh my gosh. Still, the next morning, Margie and I are looking at each other saying, what are we doing down here? Truly. And then she said, you know, I have a stack of cards. It's about this deep. And these are the scriptures that I want to remember. And these were the scriptures from yesterday. Isaiah 59, 14 through 16. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands at a distance. For truth stumbles in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and whoever turns from evil is despoiled. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. We looked at each other and said, okay, we're supposed to be here. So we went out to the detention center. We walked as a group, 500 to 1,000 of us, I don't know how many, and again and again chanted, hoping they could hear us, estamos aquí, we are here. You are not alone. You are not alone. The cool thing is that we could tell there were people somehow outside, we couldn't see them, who were cheering. They could hear us. And they knew that we were out there standing with them. That made me cry. The border issues are complicated. Immigration issues are complicated. But a little mercy makes the world a little less cold and more just. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus' love in us, flavoring, revealing, drawing the way, truth, life of Jesus in us. One of the things I'm going to do this next week is see the movie about Fred Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Presbyterian pastor, humble kind of guy. I've heard the movie's pretty unbelievable. But that man was salt and light. He said this, when I was very young, most of my childhood heroes, were, they wore capes, they flew through the air, or picked up buildings with one arm. They were spectacular and got a lot of attention. But as I grew, my heroes changed. So that now I can honestly say that anyone who does anything to help a child is a hero to me. This is accessible. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Wherever you're living your life, Jesus is loving us, flavoring, revealing, drawing. Because to be salt and light in the world is to live out the way, the truth, the life of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we know this world needs mercy and healing and truth-telling and encouragement and transformation. And we offer ourselves to you now that you will fill us anew with your Holy Spirit so that we can be your salt that we can live up to our calling as your church and be that light, city on a hill, drawing all people to you and giving glory 
to our Father in heaven. Amen.